Now we try to say this every week, that our prayer is that you are welcomed well when you come in and that you are fed well once you are in. So now is the time where we get to eat of the precious word of God. And I hope your heart has been prepared for this time now. So we have been in this book of Philippians for a couple months now. We've made our way on this journey through the first chapter, and now here we are at the end of chapter 1. I'm not going to go back and review all of what we talked about, but basically what we have been talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ radically transforms every area of our, of our lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ has changed our life at salvation, what we know as justification. But then furthermore, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to guide us all along the way on our journey. The gospel of Jesus Christ radically transforms every decision we make, everywhere we go, and every way we interact with everyone we come into contact with. That is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. Well, we're at the end of this chapter. This gospel, meaning the, the glorious gift of God through Jesus Christ. I want to be very clear on this. Jesus Christ came, lived a perfectly sinless life. He died a sacrificial death and rose in all victory so that we might have a relationship with a holy God. A relationship that goes from now till the end. In this awesome book, Philippians, in chapter 1 and verse 6, we find he who has begun a good work in you will continue it till its completion, till the end. That's what the gospel does in our lives. This is not something we take lightly. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a massive deal. Um, I don't know if you've done this yet, but you can travel through the first chapter and just circle the times the gospel is mentioned, the advancement of the gospel. Very quickly you find, as we'll look at today, the gospel is a big theme through the, book, uh, through the first chapter. And so because of that, we've brought it up several times. We want to focus on this theme, a gospel-centered life. But before we actually look at this today, we're we're looking at the last four verses, a gospel-centered life in regard to unity. I want us to do this. I want us to take some time for a... You thought you were getting out of school. Sorry, guys. High schoolers, nope. We're going to have a little bit of a history reminder today. So let's clear out those cobwebs and uh, back to junior high, high school, maybe college days. And I want us to think about this army, these people the Roman army. Yeah, what, why? You're like, man, we're talking about Philippi, Pastor Andrew. You're like on the, you're in the wrong page. Well, I, want to, I want to remind all of us that Philippi, though it was geographically in Macedonia, so we're talking 800 miles from Italy, from Rome, 800 miles from Rome proper. It was what was known as a Roman colony, so that was part of this Roman colony system that was basically established from retired military veterans of the Roman army. So as the Roman Republic expanded, later to become, as we'll talk about in just a minute, the Roman Empire, it has expanded, and as battles were fought, there were military veterans that would kind of 
plant themselves in different locations? Well, that is Philippi. When we think about Philippi, 40%, they, they would say, historically, nearly 40% of the occupants of Philippi, so we're talking about the book we're reading here, Philippians, 40% of the people in this town, Philippi, would be considered as Roman citizens. Okay, that's a big deal. <laughs> Maybe we don't realize it now, 2,000 years later. But to be a Roman citizen was a massive deal in this historical context. Coming with it a bunch of privilege and prestige. Well, 40% of the people living 800 miles away from Rome considered themselves as Roman citizens. Of those 40%, almost all of them had a military background. You can't say unequivocally that they all did because some were transplants. Uh, Philippi was along the Ignatia Way, which was like the major route from east to west, west to east. It was right there, so some people would kind of plant themselves in Philippi. But most of these 40% of people, they considered themselves Roman citizens. And of those 40%, a mass amount of those people were actually veterans. Whether they fought in the Roman army, this Roman army, or maybe their grandpa fought in the Roman army, or their dad fought in the Roman army. I don't know if any of you have ever lived close to a military base or on a military base. Anybody in here? Oh, that's, so we understand there's a bit of a military honor system that's happening. I mean, there's, there's a higher level sometimes of, um, of, of structure. Also potentially a higher level of shenanigans <laughs> that happen. But, but at any rate, there's a group of people in this church, in this city of Philippi, that knew exactly about this, the Roman army. What are we talking about, okay? Back in our minds, this historical context, I want us to think of one of the darkest periods in Roman history. Okay, we're going to travel back to 42 B.C. So this is before Jesus came. You guys didn't realize history lesson, right? Here we go. 42 B.C., nearly 40 years before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came, there was one of the darkest eras, periods in all of the Roman existence. For 500 years, we had what was known as, what historically known as the Roman Republic. Do you remember this? All right. We have someone that raises to the top, but uh, you also have what's known as the Senate that helps guide this, the, the representatives. Well, you'll probably remember a fellow by the name of Julius Caesar. Remember him? <laughs> Some say unfortunately, all right. Julius Caesar, a great military leader, establishes and, and really guides this town of Rome, the city of Rome, builds it up. Well, coming through his leadership, and I'm not going to go deep into Julius Caesar's life, but there's something amazing that happens at the end of his somewhat dictatorship. He worked alongside the Senate, and the Senate actually called out to him and said, we want you to rise to the top. However, there were a couple in that Senate that weren't as apt to receive this. Remember a fellow by the name of Brutus? Another fellow by the name of Cassius. Along with 
a group of senators, these fellows did not like Julius Caesar raising to the top of the ranks in Rome. I mean, so this story astounds me every time I read it or hear it. What did they do? The senators, smiling and talking to Julius Caesar, they, they lure him into the theater of Pompeii, and all of his friends, all of his comrades there that were present, pulled out daggers and swords and stabbed him to death. Do you remember this? The, arguably one of the greatest military leaders in all of history, his last experience in this life is to look around at his comrades with swords in their hands coming at him. I mean, when we talk about Roman history, this is somewhat dark. And then what happened from there? And I need to advance the story a little quicker here. But you've got on one side this Brutus and Cassius. On the other side, you have Mark Antony and, and actually the, the next heir, Octavius. And they come to the forefront. Two kind of groups. One that's loyal to Caesar and one that's loyal to uh, the Senate, basically. The liberators and the Caesarians. And they're kind of loyal to their calls. Well, Brutus and Cassius, they flee the scene because they know something's coming down. They get out of there and they travel east of Rome. They take a trip and along the way they are building up this army. A hundred thousand strong Brutus and Cassius are building this army. And this is an army of very effective warriors. These guys know how to fight. They've been trained in the Roman army. These guys know how to defend themselves. They know how to defend their land. And now Brutus and Cassius have at their hand as somewhat pawns in the political storyline a hundred thousand soldiers. In the meantime, back in Rome, we have Mark Antony and Octavius, and they're ready to defend the Roman, uh, what is to now become the Roman Empire. Transitioning from Roman Republic to Roman Empire, and we have Mark Antony and Octavius ready to fight, ready to defend. There's so much more to the story, but they travel in search of Brutus and Cassius, and here we meet on one of the darkest days in Roman history, 200,000 soldiers. And here's the irony of it in the Civil War. They were all trained in Roman tactics. They were all trained from Roman military leaders. They were all using Roman weapons in the same way. This group of men known, I mean, if you think about the Roman army, you think of fearless, devoted, skilled captains leading fearless, devoted, skilled soldiers. This Roman army on both sides, you think of powerful, dedicated, and organized. So now we have a battle coming around. You have the liberators, the Caesarians, about to meet on the battlefield. And this battle in October of 42 BC happened in two battles, two stages. 40,000 Roman soldiers beat, killed 40,000 Roman soldiers. One of the bloodiest wars, battles, civil wars in all of antiquity. 
happened by Roman soldiers killing Roman soldiers. 100,000 loyal Caesar followers versus 100,000 Senate followers, the liberators. Neighbor versus neighbor, and actually story, historians. Neighbor versus neighbor, friend versus friend, brother versus brother. Kind of reminds us of what happened in the Civil War of the United States of America. Which, by the way, the Civil War of the United States of America, there was uh, infinitely more casualties in, in, in the Civil War of America. But 40,000 Roman soldiers killed, fought 800 miles away from Rome. And guess what this battle was known as? Any guesses? The Battle of Philippi. Six miles from the city of Philippi was the bloodiest civil war of antiquity in Roman history. 40,000 soldiers from the Roman army slayed, left out there for dead. Six miles from where a hundred years later a church would be established in the name of Jesus Christ. We're talking about families in the church, maybe even Lydia and her family going on a little ride or walk out to the fields of where 40,000 people would have lain dead, all of them dead on both sides considering themselves Roman citizens. Okay, so why is this important? Because I think it fits perfectly into the historical context of Philippians. Why? Naturally, in this community, and, and actually it was ex- almost exactly a hundred years later that we have this book written, Paul himself, being a Roman citizen, was a very astute man. He knew times. He knew cultures, this man Paul. He writes this book just after the 100th year anniversary of this bloody civil war. He writes it to a group of people that would have known what he's talking about. This culture, weary of disunity, distrust, deception, internal pain. This internal pain was heavy on the minds of those who lived in this heavily influenced Roman city of Philippi. Paul writing, especially in these four verses, with one military term and concept after another. He writes in these four verses, talking in Roman terms, talking in military phrases. Can we see it? Look with me at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whether I come to you or am absent, I may hear that you are, here we go, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ not only to believe in him, catch this, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So how does 
Philippians 1 close. By the way, we've got to remember in our minds that chapter and verse designations didn't happen until the 16th century A.D. So when Paul writes this, he writes this as one epistle. So at the end of what we know as chapter 1, it actually flows into what we're going to see all the way through chapter 2. And what does he focus on? This word, unity in the body of Christ. He now spends significant time in the middle of his letter to the church of Philippi talking of this unity to a group of people where less than six miles they realized that 40,000 Roman citizens were slain by 40,000 Roman citizens, essentially. What are we talking about here? We're talking about an internal unity. So this morning, I want us to look at this central idea. It's on your pages there. A gospel-centered life will seek unity. If Jesus Christ has transformed our lives, I mean, think about the entire foundation of the cross. What does the cross do? It unifies us with a holy God. It brings us into relationship with a holy God. That is what the good news does. And now because the gospel of Jesus Christ brings us into relationship with the holy God, we now are to live with this exact same mentality of peace and unity in our own ranks. In the body of Christ, as Paul clearly distinguishes, this is now the body of Christ. So, let's look at this a little bit this morning. Let's kind of unpack these verses In the back of our minds, I want us to think of this Roman military scenario. In the back of our minds, I want us to think of the historical context of disunity and civil war. And now Paul talking to this church of Philippi and saying, a person consumed with the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be a person that pursues unity in the body of Christ. So, let's unpack it starting with verse 27. A gospel-centered life will seek unity, and here's the first point to be made from verse 27, that flows from a life of devotion. All right, I, I really don't want to take verse 27 lightly, because honestly, the way the terminology here, the first phrase of verse 27 could essentially be known as one of the themes in all of chapter 1. Here's what Paul says, only Let your manner of life be worthy. That word only is a big deal. I mean, you're like, eh, it's only four letters. (laughs) I mean, that word in the Greek text is one that brings with it emphasis. It's like, let me emphasize something. Here it goes. Only. This must happen, if you want to put it that way. You must, you must always do this. Think of that term, that word only in, that, in those terms. You must only do this. Based on all the stuff we said, here it is. Now what does he say? Only let your manner of life, and he continues on. Let's just talk about that phrase, let your manner of life. Some of your translations actually might say this. Only live as a citizen. So at the the root of this concept, this word in the Greek, 
It's tied back to this concept of citizenship. In fact, if we want to see the exact same terminology used, we travel into chapter 3, verse 20 of Philippians. And what does Paul says? Say, only let your, he says, only let, actually he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. He's talking about citizenship. In this passage, he says, only let your manner of life, another way of saying it is, Live as a citizen. In other words, intentionally lead your life as a citizen who considers every action as representative of your citizenship. Everything you do represents your citizenship. Again, we have to remember that citizenship's a big deal in Philippi. People knew who Roman citizens were. In fact, Paul, when he was stoned and imprisoned, remember this, in Philippi? He, he runs to that argument. Are you really going to stone and put into prison a Roman citizen? Now Paul brings this common concept to the table, this citizenship. He said, you guys know about this citizenship. Let's bring it to the table and talk of it in spiritual terms. He says this, only let your manner of life or your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow. What has Paul just done? He's saying there's a group of people here in Philippi that are living as worthy Roman citizens. And he says, let me bring something to you guys. Only live as a citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live as a worthy citizen of the one who redeemed your soul. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love that phrase. Be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, live in a manner that is fitting or suitable. It fits. Um, it is a manner that matches the gospel claims. This is the good news of salvation by faith in the sacrifice, the substitute Jesus Christ. We now live lives that match that sacrifice, that selflessness. Live in a worthy manner to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in our minds, we, we don't really need to complicate this too much because honestly, in our lives, we see this almost every day. Uh, I, we don't watch a lot of television. Uh, we stream some different shows every once in a while. But even in the ones you stream, they've got these ridiculous commercials that pop up all the time. And it's honestly the same ones. <laughs> so it comes on and all the kids and I are like, ah, and I mute it. And they quote it because they know it so well. So we mute the commercial, like, okay, and we talk and stuff like that. As soon as it comes off, we, the show will come back on. But even in those commercials, you can say a lot, even without hearing a single word. You can see a ton. What am I talking about? So to have a commercial that's worthy, you're not going to have this dude with, you know, bloodshot eyes and sniffy nose, just, this allergy medication works for me, you know not going to work. That's not the dude you're going to put on the commercial. All right. You got someone that's got their face all nice and pretty and they're like, yeah, I used to be like this. And then they show you what he used to look like. 
the after product. I mean, you're not going to have like this weenie junior high dude representing Bowflex when it looks like he's going to break if he puts those things in the air. It doesn't match. Uh, running the risk of being offensive. You're not going to have a diet product shake being sold by someone that's obviously, you know, not going to be competing in the Olympics. What you do is you don't put the product out here that doesn't match the claim. And what's Paul saying? Your claim is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let the product match. Live as a worthy citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love this because he takes it up and he ups the antes here. What is he saying? So that whether I come and see you or am absent. Okay, so what's the temptation when the coach walks into the office for 20 minutes? During practice. I mean, everything comes apart on the field. He comes back out of the athletic office and there's five injuries. And there's globs of hair on the ground. Obviously, fights have happened. You know, nothing happened in those 20 minutes. Okay, what happens in the elementary school when a teacher steps out for two minutes? I'm, oh, do you remember those days? Your teacher walks out and you're sitting in that desk like, okay, who's going to move first? And you know it was Bubba over here, three seats over. He's going to get up and start throwing something at his girlfriend across the room. Or his not-so-best friend. I mean, things happen. And what's Paul saying here? Let me just make it very practical. He's saying, live as a worthy city, citizen even if I'm not here. Paul was an obvious disciple to the church of Philippi. He loved these people dearly. And what has he just told us? He said, basically, my days on this earth are numbered. I'm not going to be around long. And now he's telling the church in Philippi, you let your manner of life match the gospel of Jesus Christ. You live as a worthy citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if I'm not around. You live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's continue on. So what is this unity that we'll see traveling to chapter 2? What is this unity based on? It's based on a, a life of devotion. I, I am in this for the long haul. And because of this life of devotion, living as a worthy citizen, I'm now going to commit my life to unity. Living a unified life in the body of Christ. This is unity that flows from a life of devotion, but this is also unity that stands firm for the faith. I love this. Here we go right away into some more of these military phrases. Paul says this, only let your, I'm, I'm reading verse 27 right up here, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, and here we start here, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
Again, we don't want to make this overly complicated, but what does he say here? You are standing firm in one spirit. You are firmly committed in conviction and belief to what I've been teaching you. This gospel, you will not let it slide through your fingers. This gospel, you will stand with all you've got. Um, Thinking in athletic terms, I remember there were certain guys that I would wrestle against uh, in, all the, in the years I wrestled, especially in high school, there were certain guys that were impossible, it seemed, to take down. Their stance was so strong. I mean, I'd try to throw them. I mean, I had to weasel my lanky body all around them just to get them taken down. And I get the picture here of a, of a follower of Jesus Christ holding to the gospel with all he has, standing firm on the gospel, immovable, I mean, that's an athletic term, but I think very quickly our minds can run to those pictures we just saw of the Roman army. Standing firm. The picture is this. This is a military concept with a picture of a soldier who determinedly refuses to leave his post, irrespective of how severely the battle rages. I'm not going to move, even if my life is ended. That's what Paul's saying here. Stand firm for the faith of the gospel. Don't give it up. This is the best thing ever. This good news is worth holding on to the day you breathe your last breath. There's a lot of application can come from this, but I think body of Christ, we, can, we should remind ourselves of this every single day. At our workplaces, on the sports field, in the classroom. There's going to be teachers teaching kids in this room, teen, not kids, sorry, teenagers, young adults in this room, be teaching them to doubt whether the scripture is really sufficient, to doubt whether God is really good, to doubt whether Jesus Christ is really divine in nature. And I would say teens, I would say workforce, I would say sports team coaches, all of us in this room, community members, we hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ with all we have, standing firm for the faith of the gospel. And we continue on here because it adds an element to the story here. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Wow. I would imagine as this is being read to the church of Philippi, remember, sometimes we need to remind ourselves that we're we want to kind of be like the church Philippi here. And sometimes I envision that you're not Cross Point Community Church, you are Philippi. And we're reading this actual book, this epistle. That as this is being read, I, I would imagine there was very possibly a pause behind that. Because they remembered that a hundred years prior to this, there was a massive disruption of unity. They knew about this. And Paul says, with one mind striving side by side, this one central dominating desire leads to a determined struggle. And and I love this because just the terminology used, with one mind striving side by side, because a lot of times when we hear the, we read the term in our minds, you know, in, in our culture, striving, it's usually not side by side, it's face to face. That's how we think of striving. You get in a fight, you're getting a fight with somebody face to face. You're going to blows. In this terminology, Hughes, is it's not 
fighting against, it's fighting with. You're standing side by side. Okay, let's go back to those junior high, senior high books and remember some of those pictures. Remember this? This is the Roman military. They stood side by side, interlocking arms, interlocking shields, creating a human barrier, not breaking the ranks. In fact, they had this, this uh, I can't quite see it there. Can you turn those lights down just a tad? Oh, it's magic. You can kind of see the ranks being set up. The infantry, the soldiers are all set up side by side in an unbreakable format. They had this thing called the testudo. Anybody know what that means? The tortoise. The turtle. I mean, of all the formations in the Roman army, this one is the coolest. They would all gather together, and some of you said, you, I was talking to some of them up there, they said they saw it on Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Very similar. You're standing side by side, up over the top are shields, you are immovable. You are striving, okay, here's the terminology, you are striving together. Another picture, that's the turtle. I even saw some depictions of this where you would have an army standing on top of the turtle to get a heightened attack. I love that. So when we read this passage, here's what we're standing side by side for. Not to win on the battlefield, but we're standing side by side for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hold this with all we have. We don't have dissension in the ranks where you're holding, standing beside each other and you look at someone and start popping them in the face. No, you hold your stand with all you've got next to the person that's also holding their stand with all they've got. And this is the unity of the body of Christ. We continue on in the passage. He says, for the faith of the gospel, it's holding the lines against the attacks from within which by the way I think any of us would realize that there are attacks from within the body of Christ is very good at throwing out bombs within the body of Christ missiles fly in the body of Christ sometimes and Paul says instead of facing each other and fighting face out and fights you strive together Strive together for the faith of the gospel. It's also holding the lines against the attacks of Satan. It's the same terminology. That word stand, you'll find later on in a book of Ephesus, to the church of Ephesus. You stand strong and courageous with all that armory in Ephesians 6. Same terminology used. We stand firm for the faith of the gospel. So what about this unity that we're going to be talking for the next month? This unity stands firm in the faith. That's, a, that's a, a huge discussion for the body of Christ. Because in our minds, we would like to just say we stand firm. But what's the glue that's going to hold us together? It's the faith. You cannot have true unity without the last line there, the faith of the gospel. We don't water down this unity and just say, hey, get along, everybody. We bring this unity and build it up in a robust fashion and say the only thing that's going to hold us together is our faith in Jesus Christ. 
That is what's going to keep us together. The gospel of Jesus Christ radically transforming the words that I want to say to the person in the body of Christ, but I will hold saying. That thought that I want to think to implicate someone else in the body of Christ, but I refuse because that's not walking in the Holy Spirit. The faith of the gospel. So, this passage We think about unity that flows from a life of a devotion, unity that stands for the faith, firm in the faith. Let's, let's, oh, and this one's got to be brief. Let's look at the last one. Unity that is not intimidated by the opposition. In the Roman army, there were consequences if you faltered in the day of battle. Um... I'm not going to go into that right now. But I will just say, when you falter in the day of battle, when you run, when you hide, your life would be ended. (laughs) That's how important it was that you didn't falter because of your adversaries. And Paul says this, and not frightened by anything. Um, There it is. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Okay, let's just kind of go real quickly through this. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. What is he saying? Don't be terrified. In fact, some of your translations will use the word terrified. Don't be terrified. Don't be intimidated to the point of being crippled or from acting foolishly. Don't be crippled by what you see out there. Don't be scared I mean, the term that comes to my mind is scared to death. Um, actually, the terminology here could be used in, in this Greek language. It could be taken from what would, be, what would happen to a horse that's startled. Okay, so last week, we've had a coyote in our back creek bed that's, he got one of our cats, our little kittens, and he's working on the chickens. And so my neighbor and I, we're going to battle. I mean, we're talking about serious battle. My neighbor and I are standing firm for the faith of the bullet. <laughs> We're going to end this guy's life, try to tra- trap. And So anyways, this week I, I got up a little early before the sun came up, and I was sitting out in the, behind our, the area where I knew he ran. And we also have a couple horses, and so one of the horses didn't hear me go out there. And this is one of the most precious horses, Jules, this mare. Um, and she walks behind, and I'm sitting there under a tree, just quiet. I'm going to tell you, she stopped. She looked at me, couldn't figure it out. And I'm like, hey, Jules, it's me. She looked at me, and she's like, that is not normal. (laughs) All right. And she took like a little jump, like she seriously jumped, and then trod a little bit, and then as quick as I could look at her, she took off to the complete other side of the pasture as fast as she could. All right, that is the word terrified. It's being scared to death like a horse that is startled. And Paul says, don't be terrified. Don't be scared by your adversaries out there, those who want to dismantle your message or your life. Don't be terrified. Stand firm in the gospel. Um, my mind goes as a coach and even as an athlete to different ones on my wrestling team who, as a wrestler, I would look in their eyes and think, dude, dude, you've lost this match and you haven't even stepped foot on the mat. You've sized that person up, you've looked at his record and you're like, uh, I might last 12 seconds. 
I mean, on the soccer field as a coach, there were guys I would actually need to put on the bench until the game, some of the better players, until the game advanced so they would stop being so scared. And Paul is saying here, don't be afraid of your adversaries. Stand firm. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Your unity is an obvious sign that the opposition and their argument, hey, they won't win. They won't win the battle. They have no grounding, no footing to stand on. In fact, it is a a sign to you of your salvation. Unity, standing together, firm for the gospel, is a sign that God has rescued you. Uh, We need to finish this up. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Can we just let that soak in for two seconds? It has been granted to you. That's the word for a gift. God has graciously given you suffering. What? That's completely anti-culture. How would a good God bring suffering into our lives? Scripture says he grows us through this. Scripture says that through this suffering, we now identify with Jesus Christ, his person and work. And Paul says in this passage, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Basically this. I feel your pain, Paul's saying. I feel it, guys. I know what you're going through. You ever said this to your kid? You ever said, if I can do this, you can do it? Anyone in your life. You've been through it. And Paul is saying, I've been through that suffering, guys. In fact, right now, as I'm writing this, with all these military terms, guess who I'm strapped to? The Praetorian Guard. (laughs) Guys, I know what I'm talking about. I've been through it. And Paul is saying, this suffering is for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is for his name's sake. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we stand firm through the suffering of our lives, we realize that it is for the sake of his name. When we get into chapter 2, we're going to see that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the suffering we go through that suffering that's painful, that suffering that it's tough to get out of bed some mornings, that suffering is the, for the sake of Jesus Christ and his name. We'll talk more of that when we get into chapter two, but if we could summarize this, we'd have to go to this st- sentence. So close this out. We must be devoted, brothers and sisters in Christ, to gospel unity. The gospel brings us together, and with all we have, we need to be devoted By his grace, we're devoted to gospel unity. To advance it within context, it would be something like this. Because God has radically radically changed our lives through the gospel, we must be devoted to gospel unity. So what? We're going to walk out of these doors in a couple minutes. So what? You ask this question? Again, first person. Has the gospel impacted every area of my life, of your life? Has it impacted your life? Only live as a worthy citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let the product match the claim. 
Do we live as a worthy citizen of the gospel, a citizen of heaven? This will be seen. How we live, teens, young adults, young family members, uh, older family members, everyone here today, this will be seen in our choices today. This will be seen in our choices tomorrow. This will be seen in our choices all through the week, whether we're going to live as a worthy citizen of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This will be seen in our actions. This will be seen in our reactions. Last question and we'll go home. Are you truly devoted to gospel unity? Honestly. How devoted are you to standing side by side for the faith of the gospel with the people sitting in this room? Your brothers and sisters in Christ. In no way does this passage water down the purity of the gospel. This is not saying ignore sin. We'll get there. But what this saying is, as much as lies in you as we find in the scriptures, live peaceably with all men. Stand side by side for the faith of the gospel. These people in this room that honestly, there's probably some in this room that may annoy you a little bit. Will you stand face, uh, side by side, not face to face? Will you stand side by side for the faith of the gospel, for the bigger picture, for the eternal value? Because Paul says this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of, of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So God, that's our prayer today. God, so often we're tempted to be led by our emotions, our feelings. And so often our feelings don't want to get along with other people in the body of Christ. Oh God, I pray that this love would be a choice to stand firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us grace to do that. Every one of us in this room, we're in this together. We're part of the body. Let us not strive face to face. Let us strive side by side.